Resurrection Sunday, considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of Christianity. Uh, it's mentioned, the resurrection is mentioned over 100 times in the New Testament. Uh, resurrection central to the apostles' teaching. Uh, as you may be aware, when we look at what are our cues for the resurrection, um, how do we structure our faith and practice? It's about the book of Acts, what they did in the early church. And when we look in the book of Acts, we see that the resurrection was central. We look in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll look at today, the, the most exhaustive treatment of the resurrection. We see that the Apostle Paul was very clear on the meaning, the manner, and the importance of the resurrection. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, it was the subject of every sermon that is preached in that book. So essentially, the bottom line is, is without the resurrection, there is no such thing as Christianity. It all falls apart. In that, one question that every single one of us uh, ought to have or have had is simply this. What happens to me when I die? Is this life all that there is? Is there a life after the grave? Is there life beyond the grave? And, and as important, is it possible for anybody to know the answers to these questions? When all the way back, the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, Job says in chapter 14, verse 14, he says, if a man dies, will he live again? I want to look this morning at the resurrection. I, we don't have a slideshow on purpose because I'm going to be ripping through a bunch of passages and I don't want to have everybody totally confused. If you want to take notes, you're welcome to, or if you want to catch the message online, um, it'll be put up uh, fairly soon. So Doug's been doing real good getting those things out. So at any rate, I want to look at three things pertaining to the resurrection that come to bear in each of our lives personally that come to bear with the church in general. And the first is that the, resurre the resurrection is an historic fact. We see in the Old Testament that it's foreshadowed. Uh, I was speaking with someone last night that, that there are types and shadows. A type is an impression. It's like the old style typewriter. Some of you know what those are. That it, the type would fly up and it would strike the ribbon and transfer an impression onto the paper. That's a type. And there are types and shadows, types and impressions all through the Old Testament. I'm going to look at a couple. We could look at a bunch, but we don't have time this morning. So the resurrection is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled. It finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. So it's an historic fact. The second thing we're going to look at is that the resurrection fulfills a present need. We're going to look at the fact that it fulfills a present need vertically our relationship with God, and it fulfills the present need horizontally, the manner in which we live our lives. The third thing we'll look at is the resurrection is a future reality. And it is. If we don't have the hope that comes through the resurrection, we don't have hope. So looking at all three of these, how do they apply to my life personally? We'll start with the, the, the fact that the resurrection is a historic fact. Uh, from the Old Testament, going all the way back, 
In Exodus, God, after Israel was delivered from Egypt, they're wandering around out in the wilderness. They had, it was supposed to be an 11-day backpack trip, turned into 40 years. And uh, because of Israel's disobedience. And during that time, God said, you know, I want to dwell with you, my people. However, there's this thing called sin that separates you from me. So I'm going to have you fashion a dwelling place for me that will put me among you, but keep me separate from you. Because sin had not yet been dealt with. It could be covered in the law of Moses, but it could never be eliminated. And so he instructed Moses to make this thing called the tabernacle, which is essentially a tent in a yard. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to, to sound demeaning towards that. I mean, it was a beautiful, it was a, a God-ordained place. But it was essentially a 75-foot wide, 150-foot long yard with a fence around it, beautiful fence. And inside was the tabernacle itself. That was called the outer court. And the tabernacle itself was a 15-foot high by 15-foot long by 45-foot deep tent. In that tent, there was the holy place. The first 30 feet inside of that was where the priest would go in and minister daily. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go behind. There was a big rug, it was called the veil, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And once a year, the priest would go in and minister behind the veil in the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. In Exodus 25, verse 10, we read, and God is giving Moses instructions for how to make this ark. The Ark of the Covenant. He says, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. Now, a cubit, they measure it from the elbow to the end of the hand. I have a longer cubit. But the point is, is it was, it's about a foot and a half. So uh, two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width. And a cubit and a half its height. So he's saying essentially about 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. Now, this thing would be overlaid with, with pure gold and... Uh, yeah, it was made of acacia wood, but you didn't see the wood. It was it, it was a beautiful piece. It, it, it would be, and then they would put rings in the four corners, and the priest had these long poles that they shoved through the rings, and that's how they carried it. They did not touch the ark. It was holy. It was set apart. Now, God further gives Moses instruction on how, how to build the lid for this box, this thing called the ark. In Exodus 25, verse 17, he says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Not, not wood covered, but this is pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. 45 by 27. Fits pretty good on top of the ark. He says, And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Now, if you remember the old Indiana Jones movies, they had a pretty good replica. It was actually a, a very good replica of what that may have looked like in that th- there's this, this box. Inside, they put the tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that had budded. And outside, this on the lid, it, it was this 45-inch long thing that had hammered gold <laughs> angelic beings, cherubim, that faced inwards, and that their wings covered the top. That's what he says. He says, make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall see, you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. 
and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. So that's the scene. In this place called the tabernacle, the yard with a tent, in the tent, in the back section, the 15 by 15 by 15 foot area, this ark of the covenant where the presence of God would be, was stored. And the Israelites literally packed that thing up, the Levites specifically, uh, and they carted it around wherever God led them. Now God said, you know, when I move, I will visit you with a pillar of fire at night and a, and a cloud of smoke during the day. And when I move, you move. <laughs> so they carted it around for 40 years. And once a year, they, the high priest would go in and make atonement. We're going to talk about that. In Leviticus chapter 16, we see the day of atonement explained. Now, we're going somewhere with this. You will understand as we follow along. Follow along with me and follow closely because you'll, you'll see the shadows fulfilled. You'll see these types because these are types. They're impressions that find their fulfillment in the cross and in the resurrection. Leviticus 16, 1, he says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. That's Nadab and Abihu. Uh, they decided to, uh, it's it thought anyway, if you look at the text, that they had too much to drink and decided that they were going to go in and, and they, they profaned the holy place. Uh, and God Literally, they offered strange fire to the Lord and God brought fire down from heaven, consumed them. So he says, they died and, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Hold on to that. So there they are in the holy of holies on the day of atonement, one day a year, the high priest would go in and, and God is saying, you tell Aaron, look, Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, who was the high priest, you don't just to, get to come and go as you, as you please. Uh, I'm going to set it out to where you know exactly what to do and when to do it. And don't violate that because you'll die. And it's because God is a holy God. They had these strict rules around when they were able to come into the presence of God because in his holiness, he, does not in, he doesn't dwell at the same time with sin. So we'll see what God does in this elaborate thing, and hopefully you'll appreciate the cross and the resurrection, because these guys had to do some work just to have their sin covered, never eliminated like we have in Christ. He says in verse 3, he says, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. So he had to dress a specific way. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Now, he is sinful man. So he had to atone for his own sins before he could go in and do the priestly service to atone for the sins of the people. So he has to make atonement for himself and for his house. He'll take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
that's outside when you first walked into this tabernacle, into this yard, there was a huge altar there that had horns on the four corners that they would put the rope of the animals across. And that's where they did animal sacrifices for the animals to die in the people's place. All right. So he's saying these two goats you'll present to the Lord there at the gate. He says, then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. That's where, this is where the, the term scapegoat in our culture comes from. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat, the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Interesting. There are two goats. One goat will be sacrificed for the sins of the people. The other goat, the sins of the people will be, it will be actually imputed to the goat. The priest will lay his hands on it and the sins, pray the sins of the people into the, that goat. And that goat would be let loose to go out into the wilderness. So as an imperfect man, again, he had to atone for his own sins before he could make atonement for the people. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is both high priest and sacrifice. He fulfills both. And that's clear in the book of Hebrews. We'll look at that in a minute. Uh, but that the difference is that Jesus is better in all regards. Jesus is better than these goats, obviously, He's better than the priest, than Aaron, because he is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's what we're told. And so we're going to look at Jesus as the fulfillment of what's going on here. But more than that, these things foreshadow the cross and the resurrection. We'll see how in a minute. So the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies three times. The first uh, continuing here in Leviticus, in verse 12, he says, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and with his hands full of sweet incense, be- beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. So he's going from the holy place into the holy of holies, where the ark is. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Now, incense is symbolic of prayers. And, and the altar of incense was there. It was there to be symbolic of the prayers of the people rising up to God as the smoke rose up to God. Now going into the Holy of Holies, it would be the prayers of the people filling the room. The second time he goes in, it says he'll take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, specifically on the east side of the mercy seat. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. The third time that he went in, uh, actually he's still out in the, in the yard, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions for all their sins. He shall do for the tabernacle of the meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he has to go in alone. He has to atone for himself. He has to atone for his household. And then he can atone for the congregation of Israel. Very complex. Now going on in verse 20, and we'll wrap this up here in a couple of minutes. He says, when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting in the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So now he has this live goat. He's already slain the one 
to be the sacrifice for the sins of the people. He'll bring the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins and put them on the head of the goat and shall send it away in the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. I want to get ahead of myself real bad right now. (laughs) The goat, (laughs) so the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Folks, part of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is what we call the vicarious atonement of Christ. That's a doctrine. It's a main doctrine of the Christian church. What vicarious means is one to stand in the place of another. That's what's going on here. He's got the one goat that dies for the sins of the people, that atones for the sins of the people. That goat is standing in the place of the people. And then the other goat that lives, that goes, that bears their sins away. When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, we looked at that on Friday night, what he was indicating is he had now paid the penalty. His blood paid the penalty for our sins. And then, as we look at the resurrection, he bears our sins away. He carries our sins away. He's both. He closed the gap between God and man forever. No longer would it be once a year. No longer would it be a pair of goats. We have a perfect sacrifice. We have a perfect one to bear our sins away. That's why we don't live in constant condemnation, folks. Why we can ask Jesus to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us. When we give our lives to the Lord, when we repent of sin, when we turn from the old life and say, no more, I don't want to have that life. I want to have you and I want to have the life that you bring, the life that you give. And that's why from that point, yeah, my sins are forgiven. They're gone. But what happens when I move forward from there and I blow it or I say something wrong to my wife or, I mean, fill in the blank. Somebody cuts me off on the road, (laughs) which I still struggle with. I mean, Really, why is it that we don't have to have guilt for those things? Because Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He bears our sins away. He's the fulfillment of both. In John chapter 20, let's look at the fulfillment of what's going on here in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the presence of God above the seat. Early Sunday morning, Mary goes alone and sees the tomb is empty. She thought that Jesus' body had been stolen, so she runs back and she grabs Peter and John. So they come running to the tomb. John makes sure in his gospel to say Peter beat him. And they saw it empty, except that there were his burial clothes there, and then they leave. Mary's alone at this point, Mary Magdalene. And in in John 20, verse 11... We read, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. So Mary doesn't have time to process. She is just, she's grieved. And, and we're told in the narrative, I'm not going to go further there in the Gospel of John, that, that uh, she sees the guy standing there and she thinks that he's the gardener and then she realizes that it's the Lord, the risen Lord. 
And, and he has to tell her, Mary, stop clinging to me. I have not yet risen. I have not yet ascended to my father. And, and, but in verse 12 here, we see two angels in the tomb. One at the head, one at the foot of the stone place where they had laid the body of Jesus. I don't think that's a mistake. You look at the fact that when Jesus bled, when he died for our sins, he bled from seven points on his body. He had the crown of thorns on his head. His left and his right hands had been pierced with the nails. He had a spear wound in his side when they came to check to make sure he was dead. His back had been laid open. Muscles bare. I mean, horrible scene. I, I, it, it gets airbrushed with artist renditions because he would have been an absolute mess by the time they were finished with him. And then finally, his left and his right feet had been pierced with the nails as they pinned him to the cross. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus atoned for sin on the cross, but we see a beautiful picture here of the mercy seat of God. An angel on one side, an angel on the other side, the blood of the covenant spilled on that tablet. Sprinkled seven times. So the resurrection is an historic fact. Foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And we see those shadows fulfilled in the New. In Hebrews chapter 9, we see Jesus ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, what God told Moses, he said, look, when you build this tabernacle, it is an earthly duplicate of that which I have already in heaven. So, Now, we segue from the earthly tabernacle to Jesus ministering as the perfect high priest and as the sacrifice in the tabernacle in heaven, in the the heavenly sanctuary. In Hebrews 9, he says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats, calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all. One time. That's it. No day of atonement. He he obtained eternal redemption. The writer goes on. He says, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. He is risen. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, as I mentioned, the most extensive treatment of the resurrection in the New Testament. Uh, give you a little background here. In Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul, the apostle, he's at a, a, in a town called Ephesus. And he's writing to another town in a t- called Corinth, which is, if you went down to the southern end of Greece and from Athens, about 50 miles to the west, you would come to this place called Corinth. Uh, it was on, it, it kind of spread uh, two different bodies of water there and all of that. But so he's writing this church at Corinth because Corinth was, it had been uh, steeped in Greek mythology and in, in Greek, uh, uh, the, the pantheon of Greek gods, the people were really confused when it came to the things of, of God. Now, Paul, he was unique in that he had dual citizenship. He was a citizen of Rome, but he was also a Jew. And so he was free to move about the empire and proclaim the gospel. That's what God had called him to do. 
And having been a Jew, he was highly educated in the things of God, in the things of Judaism. Now, he knew that the Greek philosophers of their day, that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they thought that, that the soul was trapped in the body and that death freed the soul. But there was no physical resurrection. It was the separating of the soul from the body. However, as we look at what he writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, what we call chapter 15, we see that in, in verse 11 that the Corinthians had come to believe, but in verse 12 he says some did not. So Paul is writing to clarify Plus, he wants to demonstrate the critical importance of the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, when he says, he, he says, I delivered to you that which I received. He says, I'm not making this up. I'm not inventing this. This is the message I received, that Christ died for our sins. Uh, when, in, when he first came to this town of Corinth. This is after he had come to Corinth. He said, when I came to you, I came to you in meekness and in fear and in much trembling. And I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 4 in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures at that time, were the, that was the Old Testament. That was what they had. The New Testament obviously was a work in progress. So when he says he died according to the scriptures, he's talking about things that we're talking about where the resurrection had been prophesied through types and shadows, the same as we're talking about today. He's sharing with them then. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Daniel 12, Isaiah 26. I mean, the list goes on, folks. This is not a small theme in the word of God. We saw that Jesus, when he walked the earth, when he was fulfilling his earthly ministry, that he prophesied his own resurrection. In John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it back up. In Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, Jesus, he predicted his own death and resurrection three times. Back in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, and he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. Then by the 12, after he rose from the dead, he shows up in the upper room after the resurrection. He just pops in, and, and he was with them for 40 days, as we've looked at in the book of Acts. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, when he talks about falling asleep, that's a euphemism in the, in the New Testament for somebody who has died, that they've fallen asleep. So he's saying, now this is about 20 years after the resurrection, when he's writing this, and he's saying, look, there were 500 people that saw him, and a lot of them are still alive, attesting to the fact that the resurrection took place. Verse 7, and after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, James being his brother. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now, in the book of Galatians, Paul explains why he makes this claim as one born out of due time. Now, we know that he wasn't part of the original twelve. However, he did have an apostolic ministry, but he was born out of due time. He wasn't part of the original bunch. He goes on to say, I neither, neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul had been taught by Jesus himself, personally. Now, there's a, a secular Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. 
Uh, I'm going to read something that he wrote in one of his works. This is called The Antiquities of the Jews. This guy wasn't a Christian. He was a Jewish man that lived in the first century, and he did a great deal of writing to corroborate the things that we know are part of our faith and practice and part of the biblical witness of these events. Uh, Josephus says this, he says, he was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, yet those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now that was written in about 90 AD, 60 years after the resurrection. So number one, the resurrection is an historic fact foreshadowed in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. And why is that important? Because we want to have, we want to live in an informed faith. Uh, Folks, I talk to a lot of people, and when I talk to somebody who says, well, I have my faith, that's reaching, but it doesn't reach far enough. There's always got to be an object to faith. Faith requires true faith, genuine faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith in my car. It's not faith in some God that I invented and stuck in my back pocket. It's faith in the Son of God. We want to have an informed faith. So all of that was over 2,000 years ago. What impact does that have on my life today? It's a reasonable question. And that's what gets us to number two. The resurrection fulfills a present need. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, when you talk about, when we look at baptism as one of the sacraments of the Christian church, it is a sacred act. And it is an outward manifestation of something that has taken place on the inside. The reason why it's dunked down into the water and then come back out is, is, is symbolic of being baptized into his death, to being baptized into Christ. And then resurrected, coming out of the water is symbolic of the resurrection. Resurrected to newness of life, to a new life, to a new existence. And that's what he offers to every single person who comes to genuine faith in him. When he says that we should walk in the newness of life, that's in the present continuous tense. He says, walk and keep on walking in newness of life. What's he talking about? He's talking about the manner of conduct in one's life. So the question then becomes, what does this newness of life look like? And how does the resurrection fulfill my present need? Well, I just As I mentioned, the resurrection fulfills my vertical need. Now, in Romans chapter 4, just to set it up a little bit, uh, Paul the Apostle talks about Abraham. He says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That, in other words, by believing in God, by believing God, that he was reckoned as righteous, that he was reckoned to have a right standing before God. That's what righteousness means. 
So in Romans 4.23, he says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours, ours also. It'll be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the scapegoat again. This is what that pointed to, that he was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Now, the resurrection affirms our justification, our right standing with God, all right? Now, I know this is getting doctrinal, but follow with me. This is really important that we have an informed understanding of how the resurrection comes to bear in our lives. Ask most Christians about justification, and if they, if they know what that is, they will likely go straight to the cross, talking about Jesus paying the price for our sins. And that's true. But if justification simply means the absence of guilt, then we have a blank slate at that moment. But then we have to spend the rest of our lives worrying about if we will mess it up again. Paul tells us to the contrary. He was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Remember, one of the goats died for the sins committed. The other lived to bear our sins away. It's a beautiful picture of the resurrection and that the resurrected Christ, he lives. Part of what he does, he sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating, making intercession, representing us to the Father that when I blow it, when I sin, when I screw up, he says, no, Father, wait. He belongs to me. I covered that. I bore that sin away. That's how I can live in the present without the guilt of sin, besetting sin in my life. Does that mean that I go out and sin just wantonly? No, of course not. We're (laughs) grown-ups. We know better than that. But it's a beautiful shadow in what it is to be justified in the eyes of God, to be declared to be in right standing with him perpetually, not just once but it's an ongoing process. So what this means is that when Jesus rose again, he was, and he was declared to be righteous, not just lacking any sin, but he actually embodied holiness. So the credit of Jesus' perfection infinitely outweighed the debt of our sins. Understand that, folks. Now, as a Christian, I am accounted as righteous, as having right standing before God. I'm justified in God's sight by faith. Not only is it just as if I'd never sinned, but truly it's just as if I had already lived a holy life. I mean, folks, I know me. I know that the basis of God's word or God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. And it were not for the mercy of God resting upon my life, the thoughts that condemn me, the words that come out of my mouth, and the things I do or have done are not good. And yet I live in relationship to and I serve a living Lord who's taken all that out of the way. Newness of life is truly a new life by faith in Jesus' finished work. Declared sinless, declared righteous, and declared holy. This is how we can boldly come before his throne of grace. So the Bible tells us in Hebrews. So the next thing that we look at is the resurrection fulfills my horizontal need. It's about how we walk. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives a pedigree of who he was as a Jew before Jesus got a hold of him. He says, man, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was taught by Gamaliel himself, highly educated guy in Judaism, had the equivalent of a double PhD. And yet, he said, I counted all his loss. 
Verse 7, he says, but what things were gained to me, these things I count loss. I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, personal pronoun there, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, not like what happened back in Moses's day, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. The result, he says that I may know him in 1 Corinthians 15 and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he talks about the power of his resurrection. How do I access this resurrection power? How does that apply to me? How do I put that on? The answer to that, folks, that question is simple. But it's so simple that we often miss it. And it's simply this. You want resurrection power in your life? Let the weight of your life down onto Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me. When you're weary, when you're heavily laden, when you're weighted down, learn from me. Take my yoke upon me. My, My load is easy. My burden is light. As we learn to not carry the stress and the weight ourselves, but to let that weight down onto Jesus, we are learning to access resurrection power. Folks, get that. Really, if there's anything that you get this morning, get that. Because that's what, that's what separates us from the people in the world who have no hope, who live in futility, who live in a mountain of stress, who live wondering from one day to the next if they're going to make it. Or who worse have given up. Let the weight of your life down onto Jesus. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, fine. But if you're not in the habit of doing that, you need to start. If you are in the habit of doing that, experience the joy that is a result of knowing that he will take it. So if you don't know the Lord, let the weight of your life down on him for the first time. If you do, perhaps, are you a Christian who's struggling? Give it to him. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If we confess with our mouths that Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's a gift. It's not something I have to earn. You can live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit and shaped by his love. That's a birthright for every one of God's people. There's a shadow of that even in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, Ezekiel prophesying that which was yet to come. He says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Folks, that's a promise. A new heart, a new sense of being, a new life, resurrection power. So in examining the resurrection of Christ, we've looked at the resurrection as an historic fact, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. We've looked at the resurrection fulfilling a present need vertically in our relationship with God, horizontally in the way that we conduct our lives. The third thing we want to look at here as we wrap up is the resurrection is a future reality for the people of God. Now, As I mentioned, some of the Corinthians were doubting the resurrection. Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians 15, 16. He says, for the dead, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. 
then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're not waking up. They're not going to resurrect. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. The resurrection is that important. He says, without it, it all falls apart. Your faith is futile. Your life is lived in vain. But we know that the resurrection did happen. We know that it's an historic fact. We know that it comes to bear in our lives and our relationship with God and our relationship with others. So that brings us full circle. How can I really know what happens to me when I die? Fair question. Here's a hint from the Old Testament. Do another, another dive back into the book of Numbers, chapter 21. It says, then they, and this is Israel, they're wandering around out in the wilderness because of the whole thing that, you know, that, that, that they did 40 years out there. So it says, then they, Israel, journey, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Now, what happened was Israel was here, and they needed to get here, and Edom was in between. And Edom said, you can't go through our land. We will kill you if you try. So they had to go all the way down around the horn, come back up the other side, and they did not like it. And I don't blame them. They had a long ways to go when it would have been a pretty good shortcut. So they had, Edom had refused Israel passage. So uh, as a result, it says uh, here in Numbers 21, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now the bread that they're talking about there is the manna. And that is miraculous food, miraculous provision that God had given them every day. Six days a week, they'd go out in the morning, this stuff would be on the ground. They'd gather it up. On the fifth or on the sixth day, they would gather up enough for two days because he said, I don't want you collecting it on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, on Saturday. So on Friday, they got enough for two days and then they'd go back to it on Sunday and gather it up again. And they're saying, we just load this stuff. We don't like your provision, God. We're tired. We have to go around and we're going to pout about it essentially. God's response. (laughs) So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Now, when he talks about a fiery serpent, he's not talking about some supernatural snake that's on fire. He's talking about they have bites that really hurt. Have you ever been bitten by something venomous? I, I reached into a phone booth one time when I was a kid and it was dark. It was at night and I reached to grab the phone and there must have been some kind of insect or spider on there because whatever bit me was on fire (laughs) and I will never forget I thought about that as I was preparing for this morning I thought man I remember it was like two days before that sucker calmed down my hand got all swelled up whatever it was so he's talking about venomous snakes therefore the people came to Moses and said we have sinned (laughs) yeah that's right you have they said, we have sinned. Now, now note that. They said, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Now, Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. There's Moses, the great intercessor, praying for the people. And the Lord says to Moses, he said, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, he set this pole in the middle of the camp so that anybody who was dying from these poisonous snakes, if they looked at the pole, they had life. And I don't know about you, but I, and I've mentioned this before when we've looked at this. If I had been bitten by a snake and I looked at that pole and I had been healed and I knew I was dying, wouldn't I want to tell everybody I knew, you got to look to the pole. Oh, don't give me that religious stuff. No, you got to look to the pole. Ah, yeah, I got my own way as I'm, you know, my eyes are getting dim. I mean, I would be freaked out. I would be wanting to make sure that everybody that I knew and loved looked to the pole. There's a message in that. Figure it out. <laughs> Repent and believe. Change your mind about it. Trust me. Be saved. So the question then becomes, how does a story from 3,500 years ago about some snakes apply to me? How does that connect with what happens when I die? How does that connect with the resurrection, Pastor John? John chapter 3, we'll wrap up with this. <laughs> if, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that John 3.16 is the most famous verse in all of God's word. That's true. But folks, you've got to understand the context of what's being said. So we'll back up to John chapter 3, verse 12. And and just to set the scene, Jesus is dealing with a guy named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was one of the religious leaders of his day, most of which were totally opposed to Jesus, and they wanted to kill him. Not so much with Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus by night, and I believe under the cover of night so that he wouldn't be discovered. Comes to Jesus, and he starts asking Jesus about you know, what, what it is that he's about. And, and Jesus has just finished telling Nicodemus, look, you need to be born from above. Yeah, yeah, you were born physically, but that's not enough. You need to be born again. You need to be born from above. You need to be born of the water, physical childbirth, but you need to be born of the spirit also. You need to be born again. So he's told Nicodemus this, and Nicodemus is totally confused. Now he says, well, do, do I have to go back into the womb and get born again? And, you know, he's kind of scratching his head, trying to figure it all out. And Jesus says this, John three twelve. he says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And I picture him saying, Nick. <laughs> he says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who's in heaven. Now, Jesus is about to give him an earthly example of the spiritual truth. He said in verse John 3.14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, ah, oh, here it comes. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. That pole in the wilderness was a symbol, a type, a shadow of the cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, not by snake bites, but through the poison of sin. Are you seeing the parallels? Now he gives the heavenly truth that he's pointing out. He's using that as an earthly example. Look, just like Moses lifted up that pole, everybody looked at the pole, they were good. People that didn't, not so much. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave a gift, his only begotten son, that whoever, that means whoever, believes in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting, eternal, resurrected life. I added that. It's true. So the three things that we've seen, we've seen that the resurrection is in historic fact. Provable. From secular history, from the biblical narrative, we've seen it. We've seen that the resurrection fulfills a present need. I need to have a relationship with God and it will never be coming on my own. That's the emperor's new clothes. I need to have the righteousness of Christ. And the only way that comes is by faith. You can't earn it. You can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. You can't walk enough little ladies across the street. You can't do it. Not that that's a bad thing, but you need his righteousness. And it only comes because he was the lamb of God that bore, took away the sin of the world. And then as he rose from the dead, he bears our sins away because he is alive. He is risen. And he continually works on our behalf, continually represents us to the father. Total fulfillment. We've also seen the, the resurrection is a future reality because God did so love the world that he sent his only begotten son. And whoever would simply believe, do you believe? Do you believe this? It's a simple but very profound question. It's the question that has to be answered if you want to know what happens after this life. It will determine eternity for each one. I want to give you a thought as we wrap up, uh, wrap up. On Friday evening, when we had our Good Friday service here, uh, I did a reading of combined, the combined Gospels of the crucifixion of Christ. And it was a, I don't know, about a 40-minute reading. Uh, but what I shared with the church was in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, the, the children of Israel had been in captivity for 70 years. They'd been off in Babylon. The Babylonians had carted them off. And then they had been returned and they went back to the city. Nehemiah had gone back to rebuild the city walls because they were walled cities. That's how they were protected. Ezra had gone to restore the worship that they had in the temple and all of that. Somebody had found a scroll with the book of the law on it. And they got up, they put Ezra on a big wooden platform and he spoke. He just read the Bible, essentially. He read the Bible to the people. And we're told that Uh, There in Nehemiah chapter 8, that the people, when they heard the word of God coming out, they were hungry. They had not had worship in Jerusalem for 70 years. They hadn't been exposed to the, the word of God for decades. And now here they are back in their homeland. The temple is getting restored. And this guy gets up. He starts reading the Bible to them. They lift up their voices and they weep. But I'm going to go a little further than I did on Friday night because it comes to bear with what we're looking at today. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Don't sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Similarly, as difficult as it can be, because the cross is sobering, uh, to wrap our minds and our hearts around the horrors of crucifixion as we look to the cross. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, this is looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, the, the originator and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Folks, joy doesn't mean happy. Happy is communicated to me by my circumstances. Sometimes my circumstances aren't so good and I'm unhappy. Sometimes my circumstances are extremely good and I'm really happy. That's not what happens with joy. Joy is communicated to my spirit by the Holy Spirit. And I have to have Christ living in me for that to happen, to have true joy. And the joy of the Lord then becomes my strength because I'm no longer living according to the dictates of my circumstances. I'm living according to the dictates of God living within me. So Jesus says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, or the writer says, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what he did because he rose from the dead. That's the joy that you and I can have. When we look at Resurrection Sunday, yeah, it's sobering to look at the crucifixion, but when you look at the resurrection that should produce, in, if, you, if you belong to Jesus, that should produce an inestimable joy inside of you. It should produce a, a sense of rejoicing inside because he lives, I live. Because he died and rose again, because he died for my sins when he rose, he bore my sins away. I can have a life that actually counts, that actually is worth living. That's the resurrection. That's why we can say with certainty, do I know what's going to happen to me when I die? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. Let me tell you what's going to happen because there's a pole out there. And unless you look to the cross, that's the word of God for us this morning. Enjoy considering the resurrection. If you belong to Jesus, absolutely rejoice. Praise God. Salvation is a free gift to anybody who will come. He says, if you want me, I will give you all that you can have. All you have to do, the Bible tells us, he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And to him who opens, I'll come in and I will dine with him. I will have an intimate relationship with him. That's what's involved in giving your life to Christ. If you've never been born from above, if you've never been born again, let today be the day. And, and, and folks, it's not, that's not some canned thing that preachers say. I don't get to win a free toaster if you do. It's very serious, very sobering, and joyful to come into the kingdom of God on the basis of faith, turning from the old life, saying, you know what, I don't want that. I don't want that life that caused the snakes to come after me. I want the new life that you promise by the word of God. Good stuff. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, um, I rejoice. Lord, in the work that you accomplished on Calvary on our behalves when we were powerless, held captive to sin, not just sins, but that nature, that nature of Adam that each of us were born with. And Lord, that you set the captives free, that you have taken a life that was lived, that was worthless, that was meaningless, that was wandering, that couldn't answer that question, what happens when I die? and that you have given us the certainty of the resurrection. Father, I pray for each one in this room, for those watching online, for each one within the sound of my voice, that you would do a powerful work. Lord, I pray, meet each one where they're at. 
Let them be assured of your love. More than anything else today, Lord, let them know the depth of your love, that you would love the world so much that you'd send your only begotten son to go to that cross and having satisfied what was required to raise from the dead. We give ourselves afresh to you, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be working in us and through us as we extend that love that you've given us to those around us. We commit ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.